so if you were uh, with us last week, you'll know that we, we started this, this new little series in, in 1 Corinthians 8 to, to 10. We're talking about um, gospel rights and freedoms and how they impact on our, our decision-making. Um, and and when, when you talk about, um, about people's rights and freedoms, that's quite a hot topic these days, isn't it? Society talks about rights and freedoms a lot. Um, and with a lot of heat, and it seems to me that a lot of the heat surrounding it is concerned mostly about the exercising of those rights. So wh- whether that's our basic human rights, you know, there was quite a bit of controversy stirred up a few weeks ago, wasn't there, with, with oh, so, so months ago, I suppose now, um, wh- about whether the UK might withdraw from the European Convention on Human Rights and what impact that might have on the exercising of, of, of basic human rights. Or uh, it might be uh, to do with the increasing number of other rights that people feel that they're entitled to. So there's a lot of conversation about a woman's right to abort a baby, for example, um, or, or a, uh, a person's right to end their own life. It is another hot one. Or, or the, the rights of victims versus the rights of perpetrators and, and so on. And the point is that when it comes to our rights and our freedoms, it's the exercising of them that society seems to be most concerned about. But when we started this little series last week, we saw that Paul's concern when it comes to Christians' rights and freedoms, the the rights and freedoms that the gospel allows us, well, it's not the exercising of them that's his priority, it's the giving up of them. And, and uh, we, we saw, didn't we, these, these three chapters see Paul, um, the context is that they see Paul giving the Corinthian church some principles about how they deal with the idol worship that's, that's all around them in, in Corinth. And specifically, he's tackling their question of whether it's permissible for Christians to eat the meat that's been sacrificed to those idols in the local temples. And, and, and we saw that although that might not appear to be a particularly relevant issue for us, actually it is because it's a question about the rights and freedoms that the gospel gives us. And although we're not likely to face dilemmas and decisions over food sacrificed to idols, we do face a multitude of similar dilemmas and decisions as Christians today, where the the gospel principles, the same gospel principles that Paul's laying down here, equally come into play. And and what we saw last week is that when it comes to the exercising of of those gospel rights and freedoms, the the Corinthian church were basically made up of two different sorts of people, weren't they? Two different groups of people. So there was a kind of a more, if you like, a more libertarian group who who as Christians consider themselves free to eat the temple food because the the so-called gods that it was offered to actually weren't gods at all. And so the meat was just meat And so it could be eaten with a clear conscience. Indeed, it was their right to be able to eat it. And they were keen to exercise that right, come what may. But there was also a group within the church who we might say were a more legalistic group, if you like, who still thought it wrong to to eat the temple food. So they couldn't disassociate the food itself from the idol worship that, 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 that often accompanied it and that they'd left behind. And so they thought it too much of a compromise for Christians to eat it. Uh, And what we saw in in chapter 8 is that Paul agrees with much of what the libertarian group are saying. Indeed, he describes the more legalistic group as those whose conscience is weak. In in other words, they're not correct to see as wrong something that is not wrong. 
But he establishes this principle in verses 1 to 6 of chapter 8, that when it comes to the exercising of our gospel rights and freedoms, actually love is more important than merely knowledge. That The libertarian group, their, their knowledge, verses 4 to 6, their knowledge is true knowledge. They are right. But to conclude from that, that they can therefore exercise their freedoms at all costs, well, that's to promote knowledge above love, and that's not the way of the gospel. So he says, yes, your knowledge is right. The gospel does give you those freedoms. But gospel freedoms are not given just so that you can insist on exercising them, but actually so that you can give them up for others. So that the first half of chapter 8 states, if you like, the, the underlying principle. Gospel freedoms are given not simply to be exercised, but to be given up for others. And, and then there's a, he gives an example in the rest of chapter 8 of a situation where they should be given up. Namely, for the sake of other Christians who might be harmed by you exercising them, weaker brothers. And now here in chapter 9, we've got another example of a situation where gospel rights and freedoms should be given up. And that is for the sake of the gospel. And you'll notice in this chapter that Paul puts himself forward here as an example of someone who has given up his his rights and freedoms for the sake of the gospel. That's what this chapter is all about. I've got two headings for us. First one, verses 1 to 18, rights relinquished for the gospel. And and have a look at uh, verse 1 of of chapter 9, where the first thing he does is establish his rights. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus, our Lord, are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So what he's doing there, you can see, can't you? He's affirming his status as an apostle here, something which others, verse 2, have have questioned, but he assumes that they agree with. And, and, and he asks a kind of series of rhetorical questions, doesn't he? That, questions that he assumes they will answer in the affirmative. Am I not free? In other words, don't I have all the gospel freedoms that, that you have? And the answer, it's rhetorical. The answer, yeah, yeah, of course you do. Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? And, and the original apostles, if you remember, were those who had received their commission from the risen Lord Jesus himself. And, and Paul here is asserting the fact that his status as an apostle is on the same basis, that his, his conversion uh, and, and commissioning on the Damascus Road, you know, in Acts 9, was an equivalent uh, uh, encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. And again, it's a rhetorical question. He anticipates the answer is, is yes. And, and so he carries on. Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, because you're the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So he's reminding them of, of the risen Christ's uh, specific commission to, to him in Acts 9 to be an apostle to the Gentiles, to be, a, uh, as, as Acts 9.15 puts it, to be a, a, a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles. So just the fact that there is a church in Corinth was, was evidence of God at work through the ministry of Paul and, and a vindication, therefore, of his, his true apostleship. In, in other words, the Corinthians of all people were, were in no position to deny that, that, that Paul had all the authority of an apostle. And so that being the case... 
He, he reels off another set of rhetorical questions, do you see, which, which assert his right this time to receive the kind of material support for his ministry that the other apostles or other ministers of the gospel should expect. Look, verse 4, don't we have the right to eat or drink? Shouldn't we be allowed to have our wives with us? And of course, they would need to eat and drink as well. Um, and the answer, it's rhetorical. Yes, yes, of course you should. And, and not only because uh, the other apostles and, and gospel workers do, um, but, but also it's his basic right as a worker that he should be supported in his ministry. Look at verse 7. Um, there's, a, there's another set of, of kind of rhetorical questions there. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? And the answer, of course, is no one, <laughs> right? Every soldier gets paid, doesn't he? It wouldn't be good for the defense of the nation if we insisted on our soldiers kind of paying their own way. Um, and, and it's the same with vineyard workers, and it's the same with shepherds. And so it is with apostles and, and gospel workers generally. And, and so it's entirely right and proper, is his point, that those who gain spiritually from Paul's teaching ministry among them should support him materially, in that ministry. It stands to reason. But then he gives an, an even more compelling reason uh, in verses 8 to 12, which is that it's biblical. Uh, ver verse 8, do, do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. In other words, the ox is, is working hard for the benefit of the farmer, so he should be entitled to some food while he's working. And if God is concerned enough for animals to write that into the law of Moses, well, how much more should it apply to people? Uh, end of verse 9. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Or, verse 10, does he speak entirely for our sake? And, and, and he affirms in the middle of verse 10, yes, this does apply to people. It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. And, and that doesn't only apply to farm workers, it applies to gospel workers. Verse 11, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? And again, it's a rhetorical question, isn't it? It's a, it's a rightful claim. Verse 12, that, that, that gospel workers should receive material support from those who benefit from their spiritual labors. And, and Paul's point here is, if other gospel workers have benefited from that rightful claim on them, well, shouldn't Paul and, and his fellow gospel workers, shouldn't they also be able to? And of course, again, it's rhetorical. The answer is yes, yes, of course they should. Um, he gives another example, look, in verses 13 and 14, from the practice of the Old Testament temple, where those who ministered in the temple received a share of the food that was sacrificed in the temple. And, and in the same way, the Lord Jesus, verse 14, commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So do, do you see what Paul's doing? He's kind of building up this case, isn't he? Like a, like a bulletproof case. That, that gospel workers, including him as an apostle, have, have an inalienable right to be materially supported by those that they're ministering to. It's, it's the practice of the other apostles, he says. It's a basic worker's right to, to earn a living from what you do. And it's biblical. The Lord commanded, verse 
14, that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living from the gospel. And I guess in, in passing, there's a, there's a kind of uh, a challenge there for us, isn't there? I, th- I think as individuals, um, about, about how we give, um, uh, maybe about the attitude with which we give, that we mustn't give as though gospel ministry was free. You know, as those who, you know, as though the people who minister full time among us were somehow volunteers, um, or, or were independently wealthy, <laughs> or something like that. No, we give, recognizing that those who work to spiritually sow among us should expect to materially reap from us, just so that our needs can be can be met. So there's, there's application on the way there. But actually, to use this passage simply to encourage us in our giving would be to completely miss the point. Because although he's built the case that he has the right to be materially supported by those he's ministering to, what we see is he doesn't establish this right in order to insist on exercising it, but rather he establishes his right in order to, to say that he's given it up. So, second half of verse 12, Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. But we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. He says the same thing, look in verse 15 as well. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any provision. That's, that's amazing, isn't it? it? It takes all that trouble to build this kind of bomb-proof case that he's biblically entitled to receive support as a minister of the gospel, all to make the point that he's relinquished his right. So why? Why has he turned it down here in in Corinth? I think we start to see the answer in verse 12, don't we? Um, Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. In in other words, he's he's turned down the support of the Corinthians because he feels that in some way to accept it would be to put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. Um, We we mentioned last week, didn't we, that, um, you know, Corinth, uh, the, the church in Corinth was a pretty worldly kind of church, um, a church that was imbibing a lot of the, the values of the, the culture around them. And, and one thing about Corinthian culture was that they loved the, the art of public speaking, uh, if you like. They loved the rhetoric. They loved the, the, the philosophy. Um, and, and so as a city, um, they received, they hosted many of the traveling teachers and philosophers of the day. And, and if you were a traveling teacher traveling philosopher, it was quite normal, indeed it was kind of expected, that you would make your living from your teaching. So in in fact, the the better a teacher you were, the more you'd expect to charge. So the the cost of the entrance ticket, if you like, was an indication of how good you were as a teacher. So so if you came to hear one and he was dressed in fine robes and he arrived with a kind of fleet of Range Rovers or something, you know, and it cost you 100 quid to go and see him, you'd conclude that he was worth hearing. But, but if you came to hear him and you discovered that he was a kind of a manual laborer, he arrived by himself in his white van, you know, because he did his teaching on the side, well, you would think he must be rubbish. Because surely any teacher worth his salt, he would be doing it full time and he would be showing all the signs of success. 
And so Paul's insistence on not being paid for his ministry in, in Corinth and therefore having to support himself by other work, and, and, and the book of Acts tells us that he was a tent maker by trade, was going to mean that in the world's eyes, he'd be viewed as kind of lacking the credentials to be a good teacher. You know, in, in a sophisticated kind of highbrow uh, Greek culture like Corinth, manual labor, you know, like tent making, well, that was, that was what the slaves did. So who's going to bother listening to a Jewish manual labourer who does a bit of teaching on the side? Especially when his message is all about a rural Jewish carpenter who ended up dead on a Roman cross. How, how weak and foolish is that? Who's going to believe a message like that from a man like him? But actually it's interesting to note that, that, that Paul's hard manual labour I think is quite a significant part of his life. You know, and it was certainly hard work. You know, tents in, in uh, uh, don't, don't think about lightweight nylon backpacking tents or anything like that. You know, think, think heavy leather tents that had to be tanned and stitched by hand. You know, Paul ostensibly was a, was a leather worker. And this, this was arduous physical work. I think it gives us a bit of insight, you know, into passages like, like 2 Corinthians 11, where Paul says his labors for the gospel were in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night. Or, or when he writes to the Thessalonians and says, we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. So I, I think it would be a mistake to suppose that Paul's long periods of time in the various cities that he visited were all spent teaching the Bible. I think the picture you get from his writings is, is that the hard graft of a tent maker actually occupied a, a good deal of his, of his time. Now, he, he didn't do that in every city. He didn't work like that in every city. Often he did accept support. Um, but neither was his tent making just something that he did in Corinth. It seemed to be a, a regular way that he, he earned money, um, regular trade. And, and he does this, end of verse 12 again, rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. So notice that it's the gospel, the, 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 the work, the expanse, the spread of the gospel that drives his thinking and his practice in that area. That's his motivation. The message of the gospel, the message of Christ's sacrifice for him on the cross has, has so gripped his mind and his heart. It so shaped his priorities that the right which the gospel gives him to be supported in his ministry, it's just another right that he's prepared to freely sacrifice so that the gospel which has saved him can save others as well. Did, did you see the principle? Um, I was thinking uh, it's kind of embodied in that, that old famous quote from C.T. Studd, isn't it? The, the, uh, he was the the, the cricketer turned uh, missionary who, who famously said, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. And I think that's it, isn't it? Paul, Paul is so gripped by the sacrifice of Christ for him in the gospel that for him to then sacrifice his right to be supported for the sake of the gospel, even though it means hours and hours of hard graft, it's just no real sacrifice at all. And, and I think that's the main application of these verses for us, friends, because the, the real challenge here is, is not so much, it's not so much challenging our wallets. It's way bigger than that. It's challenging our whole mindset. 
that, that we would have the same mindset as that of Paul here as we seek to grow the work of the gospel here on the island. It's the mindset that says nothing is more important than the gospel. Nothing is worth hindering the progress of the gospel for. No rights or freedoms that the gospel gives me am I to refuse to relinquish if by doing so the cause of the gospel can be furthered. That's quite a challenge, isn't it? So he's, he's providing a, a challenge for us here, but he still hasn't quite told us specifically what's causing him to refuse this material support here in Corinth. Um, but now I think he, he does look in verses 15 to 18, because he says, verse 15, I'm not going to exercise my, my right to support, and I'm, I'm not writing this now in the hope that you might give me uh, some, some support, but I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. That's quite an odd thing to say, isn't it? Why, why should he want to boast? Well, we need to understand he's not talking about um, boasting to others about what he's achieved. It's not, it's not that. What, what, he, what he means by boasting, I think, is that he wants the satisfaction of giving something to God voluntarily, you know, out of, out of sheer gratitude for, for what Christ has done. And his preaching doesn't qualify for that. Verse 16, he can't boast to himself that his preaching is something he gives out of gratitude because Christ compels him to do that. You know, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. So what he wants the satisfaction of giving to God voluntarily is to preach the gospel for free. Do do, do you see that? In other words, Paul, for Paul, not exercising his right to be paid for his ministry gives him the satisfaction. It gives him the reward of being able to sacrifice himself for Christ. Verse 18, what then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Isn't that amazing? Paul's Paul's giving up of his right to be paid, he doesn't see as a sacrifice. He sees it as a reward because he gets to give something up for the Lord who gave up his all for him. That's the, the challenge here, isn't it? Now, this is, a, this is a personal thing for Paul. The normal pattern, as, as Paul has just shown us, is that ministers of the gospel are to be financially supported in their ministry. I reflected on that and thought that was a good job for me because I've been doing it so long, I'm pretty much useless at anything else. <laughs> but it's the, it's the mindset, isn't it? It's the mindset that challenges us here. How these verses call us to the kind of radical gospel thinking that not only gives up our gospel rights for the sake of getting the gospel to others, but actually sees that not as a grudging sacrifice, but as a reward not to be missed. (laughs) As we get to follow our Savior in giving up our rights for the gospel. So rights relinquished for the gospel. Uh, uh, But then look at verses 19 to 27, and freedom forsaken for the gospel. And and look, he begins by underlying again the freedom that he has in Christ. Verse 19, for though I am free from all, 
I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. So he says, I'm free. You know, the gospel gives me true freedom. And yet look how he's forsaken that freedom for the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. In in other words, the freedom I have in the gospel, I give up for the gospel. Why? That I may win more of them. And, and, and then he, say, he shows us how that works out in practice in, in verse 20. To the Jew, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying that as a Christian, he's free from all of those, those cultural religious demands of, of the Old Testament law. But of course, the Jews, they were still under the law. So when Paul was with such people, he was happy to give up his freedoms. You know, I guess that means he would um, observe the rules of purification as he went into the temple, just like they did, or he would keep their food laws when he ate with them and, and so on. Uh, but, but when he was with the Gentiles, those outside the law, um, well, he, he followed the same principle of accommodating himself to the, the, the cultural practices of, of those that were around him. Now, of course, that wouldn't mean that he would put himself, verse 21, outside the law of God, you know, and and adopt their worldly behavior. He wouldn't do that, but rather he would stay under the law of Christ. In other words, his living would still be consistent with being a follower of Jesus. But but in the kind of neutral, the the merely cultural areas, he, he, he would seek to accommodate himself to those he was looking to reach with the gospel. And, and look, interestingly, in verse 22, he takes us back to the argument of, verse, uh, of chapter 8, doesn't he? With, with that mention of the weak brother. To the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. In other words, he wasn't going to be insisting on exercising his freedoms to the, the detriment of a, of a weaker brother. So, so do you see what he's saying? I think the summary is at the end of verse 22, isn't it? When he says, I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. That's what it means for Paul to forsake his freedoms for the sake of the gospel. It means, without compromising his witness, without slipping into hypocrisy, without watering down the gospel, without abandoning the non-negotiables of doctrine or behavior, he's ready to give up the freedoms and preferences that the gospel allows him for the sake of the gospel itself. And it's his freedom in Christ that gives him the confidence to adapt his lifestyle like that in in those cultural areas. And friends, I I think that's a very valuable lesson for us, you know, in in our day and age um, as well, of course, because this is about adapting how we live to suit the culture of the people we're seeking to reach with the gospel so that it doesn't appear unnecessarily culturally alien to them. You see, it's about, it's about not expecting those we're trying to reach to culturally adapt themselves to us in order to hear the gospel. But it's about us being determined to adapt ourselves to them. And that's, that's quite hard, isn't it? Because our culture, you know, just like theirs, is a very individualistic culture. And so our concern is often focused on ourselves, my freedoms, my, my rights. 
For example, um, my freedom to choose the best career for myself so that I can then choose the best area for me to live in, so that I can then choose the best house for my family and the best schools for my children. And the gospel doesn't tell me I can't do that. I'm free. It gives me freedom to choose, we say. Yes. But Paul's point here is that what I'm free to do is not really the question, is it? The real question is what is best for the gospel? What will enable the gospel to go further, faster? And, and if, you know, taking that same example, if the collective impact of everyone exercising their freedoms over career and housing and education and so on is that places with little career opportunities or places with less desirable housing or places with lower performing schools never see healthy churches established there, well, how is that good for the gospel? Now, of course, it takes a a radical gospel-heartedness to think like that, doesn't it? But I think Paul's point here is that this is what gospel-shaped living looks like in this area of rights and freedoms. It means giving them up. Because this is not just what missionaries do, you know, if they go overseas into a different ethnic culture. It's what all Christians must do if we're going to win people for Christ amongst the many groups and subcultures and so on that make up our own country. So what is going to motivate us to to that kind of radical gospel-heartedness? To be prepared to give up gospel freedoms for the sake of gospel expansion. What would motivate us to do that? Paul tells us what motivates him, doesn't it? That I might win more of them, verse 19. That I might win those under the law, verse 20. That I might win those outside the law, verse 21. That I might win the weak, verse 22. That by all means I might save some, verse 22 again. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. Do you see, Paul does this in order to win people for Christ. He does it for the gospel. And that's because he knows that the reason he's there You know, the reason the Lord hasn't called him home yet, the reason he's still here on the planet, is for the gospel. And friends, the reason you and I are still here on the planet, and that God hasn't called us home yet, is for the gospel. So this passage calls us, too, to follow Paul's example here. It it calls us to differentiate between what are gospel non-negotiables and must never be given up. And what are merely freedoms and, and, and preferences that are there to be given up for the sake of the gospel? And friends, I wonder what the ones are that we struggle with. What, what are the things that prevent us from being more involved in gospel work? Um, is, it the, is it the freedom to do what I want when I want to? Is it the freedom to have weekends away when I want or see my family when I want or have my evenings off when I want? Is, is that what keeps us on the fringe of the church's mission rather than in the middle of it? Um, is it our preference to just form relationships with people who we think are probably not too needy or demanding or, or just with those who share the same hobbies or cultural values or political viewpoints or tastes as I do is 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 are those the preferences that 
keep me from being a servant to all, verse 19? Um, Is it the coziness of my home or its proximity to work or the loss of a comfortable church environment? Is that what keeps us from considering a church plant? But what are the, the gospel rights and freedoms that we, we really insist upon exercising? That if we were to be willing to give them up, would enable us to be more effective in playing our part in the work of the gospel? What, what, what are those things? Friends, Paul's example here is one of forsaking gospel freedoms. It's, it's one of giving up personal preference. And what's at stake in doing so is nothing less than the advance of the gospel. Paul says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. And, and friends, we, we can't just dismiss those words as, as just, you know, like Paul's passion. You know, so not applicable really to a normal Christian like me. Because <laughs> if, if you look at the final few verses, do, do you see those final few verses? He shows us, I, I think, that the radical gospel heartedness that he has it is just normal. This kind of thinking, it's not the preserve of, of apostles and ministers and missionaries. It's the thinking of normal Christians. And he uses this, this very apt image of an athletics event. So Corinth was one of the cities. There, there were several uh, um, athletics events that took place around the, the Greco-Roman world. One of them was hosted in Corinth, the Isthmian Games. Um, it was one of the key championships of the ancient world. And, and he makes the point, look, verse 24, that, that in athletic events like this, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize. And notice he's put himself in the game. Do you see that? Verse 26. And how's he running? Well, he's not running aimlessly, but he's running with the single-minded determination of the athlete who, who disciplines his body, who keeps it under control because he's not running to be disqualified. He's running to win the prize. And friends, that's not some special apostles race that he's talking about there, is it? It's not some full-time gospel workers race. He's running the Christian race. He's running the same race that you and I are running. And he's given us an invitation here, I think, to check how we are running against how he's running. So, so that we won't just look at Paul in the passage and, you know, wow, what a guy he is. And what a radical gospel focus he has. Assuming that that's not what God requires of me as well. So... So how do we look? You know, I, I look at myself and my gospel heartedness and my willingness to give up my freedoms and preferences for the gospel as I run the race. And I'm thinking, Steve, you're a bit flabby. You know, we, we swim, don't we? All of us, we swim in the kind of cultural pond that hates to give up its freedoms and its rights. Just wants to exercise them. And so perhaps it's hardly surprising that so many of us get sucked into the same way of thinking. But, but Paul's point here, verse 27, is, is that to insist on our freedoms and preferences when there's gospel work to be done, well, that's, that's not heading us for the winner's prize. That may be heading us for, from disqualification for the race, from the race. I think it's a picture designed to kind of bring us up with a jolt. As, as we realize that actually every Christian is to have the, the same attitude of single-minded sacrifice for the sake of the gospel that we see here in Paul. So what's going to encourage us to run the race in that way? 
It is the gospel itself, isn't it? It's the message of a saviour who freely, joyfully gave up his rights for you and me and who will save others too as we give up our rights and freedoms for the sake of the gospel. Should we pray about that together? Let's pray. Father, we, uh, our hearts are so warmed and uh, so thrilled that we are those who have been washed clean, who have been forgiven, who have been rescued, who have been given uh, life forever with you because your son, the Lord Jesus, did not insist on exercising his rights and freedoms, but he gave them up for us. And Father, we know that we are not the only ones he would save through the gospel, but he's got others to save too. And he would use us in that task. So, Father, please would you wrest us away from the, the individualism, the consumerism of our world. And would you keep stirring our hearts to be doers of your word. And we pray in Jesus' name.